Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio, Kruiser. It's uh, September 2021, beginning of September, not sure of the date. I'm taking my constitutional. It's a bit noisy, actually. The uh, military industrial complex are doing their thing in the sky with their death machines. And in front of me, there's a great big flock of sheep, and the farmer's rounding him up. You hear him calling his dog. He's running up and down the hill. The bloke is, he's going to be very fit. The dog's going to be even fitter. They're running all over the place, finding the sheep. So, bit of noise. Um, <laughs> ambience. Otherwise, it's pretty quiet. I, I, I just saw two people down at the beginning of the walk and I haven't seen anybody else since. Uh, today, I want to talk about money. And... I'm going to put it under interesting times. And I have been kind of stimulated by listening to the news this morning and having a a, a quick scan over what's passing through Twitter. And I do feel sort of compelled to just say some fairly general stuff about, about money. So what was it in the news that got me going on this topic? Well, first of all, on the radio news this morning, Radio 4 Today programme, a programme that gets millions of viewers and which generally pushes a government line or a neoliberal line, uh, given the nature of its staffing, its funding, its relationship to, to the government. And they reported in the little period I was listening to this news programme on the first day of El Salvador's take-up of Bitcoin. Now, if you go over the podcasts, we did do a podcast about the announcement by President Buckley of El Salvador that Bitcoin would become legal tender in that country. And uh, today, that went online. And every citizen was given an airdrop of $50 worth of Bitcoin, US dollars, probably some 30-odd pounds in uh, GB pounds, sterling, and 200 ATMs, which are machines strategically placed around the country, which you can use to change dollars to Bitcoin and Bitcoin to dollars, have been installed and apparently are working. And the whole thing is running off the back of Lightning Network, I believe, which enables for very cheap and fast transactions. Excuse me while I go over this ladder style. (laughs) There we go. Nicely over the wall there. So that was the first news item that's now in progress. I mean, we knew about that and as I said, we've reported on it, but the fact that it's now on this mainstream, pretty pro-conservative, pro-neoliberal news channel, which is widely, widely listened to in the millions, and there it is just as a matter-of-fact item of news. So something's shifting. Maybe it's a small thing in some ways because El Salvador's only got 
five million odd people small geographically small quite poor doesn't really have a sovereign currency I think there is one technically but nobody uses it everybody uses dollars US dollars but no they can also use Bitcoin and they've had an airdrop to get started so it's, it's remarkable actually and I should say that classical e economists whether Marxist or neoliberal Keynesian whatever have all spoken against this and shake their heads and make tutting noises as they do generally about cryptocurrency in general including some economists who I think do have a clue and we should also remark on the fact that the, the IMF have made rumbling noises about this being a shortcut that they shouldn't take now the IMF I believe should be regarded as basically a wing uh, of the, the global oligarchy and it's particularly associated with the military ring, wing the military industrial complex uh, somebody, some wag whose name is Catchman at the moment described it as uh, half a dozen guys sitting in, in a basement somewhere deep in the Pentagon uh, deciding which countries need pulling down by uh, trashing in their economy and we saw them do this with Greece back in the day and we've seen him do it to numerous countries, extracting very, very onerous conditions for, for loans so that the, the economy of a particular country could, could kind of carry on being integrated into the world economy. And in many ways, it, it is an instrument of oppression for uh, subjects of the, the US empire. So that's the context of that one news item. The other news item is all over the, the news and the media and it's attracting absolutely tons of commentary. Uh, everybody wants to put their oar in on this one. And certainly on social media, it, it's uh, creating quite a buzz. And in fact, the, the talk has been going on for some time and it's hotting up today. Because today, Boris Johnson will announce the government's plans for social care. And that is particularly the care of disabled, which is deemed different from um, health care, social care, and the, the care of old, old people who become frail or develop dementia, and they just need looking after, need a lot of care input. And at the moment, that, that system's pretty well in disarray, and it's not covered by uh, general taxation or national insurance or anything of that type. There, there, there are some provisions, some government provisions to help with that, but mostly people pay for it by taking value out of their house if they own one, or spending savings, or having relatives pay for care, and so forth. And there's a lot of very intricate debates around this, and I don't really want to turn to those, not in this podcast, Though at a later date, I think it is something worth considering, uh, perhaps in general, particularly as to the, the, the nature and the ethical position of the notion that a society looks after its vulnerable people and that this is a collective activity rather than a private 
individual activity and concern. Nice little gate there. Just get a load of this sound there, chaps. I know some of you like the sound of the gates. Uh, so rather than getting into the weeds, which is very well covered uh, by all sorts of people, and with pretty well every angle is being aired, rather than that, rather than repeat that, I want to draw, draw out the feature of this news circulation that that struck me the most and that that is that there's an awful lot of presupposition by commentators including politicians journalists economists as, as to the the nature of money and as to the nature of funding funding collective projects or if you like as to the nature of government projects this is simply in almost all cases just ignored and it's taken for granted that we know what money is and I'd put it to you that most of our politicians do not know what money, money is. And certainly the, the public at large do not know what money is. And quite a lot of economists don't know what money is. Maybe nobody knows what money is in its complete description. So I want to sort of get down into the, the, the roots of this matter rather than thinking about the, the, the details. And as yet I haven't heard what uh, Johnson is going to do. The rumour is, and it's probably true, that he wants to put an increase on uh, a tax, a UK tax known as national insurance, which is actually a general tax but which everybody pays in work uh, who is under retirement age and it's a percentage of income and it was set up to pay for the National Health Service and uh, social security payments and the general social safety net that was instituted after World War Two. And a lot of people un understand the national insurance like that, as though it was some kind of an insurance fund that we use to, to pay out when people lose their job or, or when they retire as in the form of a pension. It's actually not true, it's not ring fence, it goes into general taxation. And it's a tax that goes across, across the board. It's got, it does have a, a weird feature in, uh, in that if you earn, I think it's over 50,000, it gets reduced. Now normally an income tax would increase as, as you... Uh, started get, getting up into, into high pay brackets but uh, not in the case of national insurance it actually reduces for the very rich and a lot of people are saying well why should uh, young working people on perhaps minimum wage perhaps on five, six, seven, eight pounds an hour be taxed to pay for the care of pensioners who might well be sitting on considerable assets in the form of houses paid for and perhaps in the form of occupational pensions, which can be quite generous. And so there's an argument around that. You can see how, how that would, would pan out into an argument. But the question that gets asked, I say, it's all very well you saying you want to spend this money on UBI or better pensions or better care for the disabled. Where's, it, where's the money coming from? Where is the money coming from? Who's paying for it? And then we have a huge discussion about which is the best kind of tax. 
now some sort of leftist economists are coming back and saying, well, uh, tax, tax the wealthy, put a wealth tax. Maybe tax the billionaires who have doubled their money uh, during the pandemic. Or have a wealth tax on it, everything over a million quid or a billion quid, whichever way you want to look at it. So you get all these kind of stories and there's, a, there's always a concern about fairness in, in the manner of paying. So, we have the question, how is it going to be paid for? You notice nobody ever says, are we going to pay for Trident submarine and nuclear weapons? Or, how are we going to pay for, for furlough during the pandemic? Or, how are we going to pay for a war? You never asked the question. Well, of course, the government mints the money and passes it to the relevant department, which spends it. That is actually what happens. They don't wait until they can raise tax to spend it. If you think about it, ta tax can't precede minting of money. If there's no money minted, you can't, you've got no money to pay any tax with. So, <laughs> the model that presumes you have to get the money, then you spend it, or you borrow. You borrow so that, so that you, you know, have an emergency, you borrow. And that just isn't how it works. I mean, governments do borrow, they sell bonds and so forth. But the majority of the money uh, in, in the national debt, which is now uh, trillions, I think it's one or two trillion, I forget which, is actually owed, owed technically, you know, kind of put owed in, in inverted commas, to the Bank of England, which of course is a branch of government. Now, I know Gordon Brown gave it a degree of independence, but it is still nevertheless a wing of the state. You know, I mean, the Bank of England will always honour a cheque cut by the government for for a project of its own, and tax doesn't pay for anything. And I put it to you, tax does not pay for anything. You might then say, well, why doesn't the government just keep printing money like there's no tomorrow? Well, if they do, the, if they do that beyond a certain point, it will. Uh, unbalance the economy, particularly it's likely to cause inflation. Though it doesn't always cause inflation. I mean, the uh, the quantitative easing in 2008-2009 to, to bail out the banks, which was an enormous amount of money, didn't cause any particular inflation. Now, if you listen to an economist like Milton Friedman, a neoliberal economist like Milton Friedman, who was very uh, much an influence over Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, you'll think that any money printing is going to cause inflation, and it isn't the case. Under certain circumstances, it does. But if a government just kind of prints money, prints money, prints money, that's got no relationship to the productive capacity of the economy, you will get inflation, and, and it can be catastrophic. But usually when there's catastrophic inflation, like in Venezuela and Zimbabwe, it's because of other events, it's because of political events subverting the economy. In the case of Venezuela, it's the, the blockade, if you might call it that, you know, the siege, the, the sanctions, the inability of Venezuela to use the SWIFT mechanism for international trade, the fact that its gold has been impounded by the Bank of England. It stores its gold in the Bank of England, and the Bank of England says you can't have it. And this is all due to the geopolitics, to, to the US not wanting a, a sort of mildly uh, democratic socialist government in its backyard. 
and it's more to do with that than anything else. Zimbabwe, the, the hyperinflation seems to have been caused by uh, giving the, the soldiers who fought in the War of Independence land to farm, uh, perhaps taking that land off already successful farmers, giving it to the soldiers who haven't got a clue about farming. So the backbone of the economy, the, the, uh, the farming, collapsed. So there has to be, I think this is fairly obvious, a relationship between money, the, how much money there is in the economy, how much money you mint, and how much money you take out, and the actual productive capacity of the economy, and the economy's uh, chances of having some kind of reasonable success, some reasonable productivity into the future. And this is the idea that the government will always pay its debts. Even though I have to say that, uh, that government debt isn't really debt how you or I understand it. Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan tried to say that it was. They tried to say, you, I, Mrs Thatcher used to say, I'm a housewife. I know how to run a household budget. You know, I've got the, the debit column and the, the credit column. And if I go in the red, I'll try and put that right as quickly as possible. But the government's not like a household. You can't invent money, you can't print money, you can't mint money to, to pay off your credit card when you're overreached. But the government can, and the government does, very, very frequent, frequently. And any, any government with a, a central bank and a sovereign currency uh, can do this. Now, the bigger the economy, the, the, the easier it is for the government to do this. And obviously, America, the United States of America, has a lot of scope in this respect. Because the dollar is the world reserve currency. All international trade takes place in, in dollars. Now there is a movement to de-dollarise the world economy. And I've mentioned this before. The, uh, the, the, the small example of President Buckley of El Salvador bringing in legal Bitcoin as a part of the legal tender is one example. But there's a much bigger one and that's the, the effort of China to form alliances with Russia and Iran. And its, it's trading block in, in Southeast Asia, which is enormous, it's 30% of the world's population, to move that away from the dollar, to use some sort of composite of the local currencies, or perhaps a, a gold-backed yuan. China has been amassing gold for a long time, as has Russia. Or maybe a, a state or a, a trading block cryptocurrency, you know, a sort of a, what's, it, what's called a, a, a CBCC, a central bank cryptocurrency. I mean, this won't have any of the uh, advantages of, of Bitcoin, etc. The cypherpunk cryptocurrency. But it will enable and... Uh, and introduce large efficiencies into trading independently of the dollar and this is all a part of the decline of the American Empire. Once big chunks of the world, say 30% of the world economy is de-dollarized which looks like happening sooner rather than later, uh, the, the collapse of the US Empire will be pretty well irreversible. So we have this context as well as to what's happening. I should say I'm influenced in what I'm saying here by a reading, a close reading of Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, 
and it's very well worth a read. You don't have to be like a, a modern monetary theory evangelist to derive a great deal of useful knowledge from it. And I think Stephanie Kelton is a very able economist. Well, at this point I want to add a little, a little caveat, you know, that economics is not science. It's not like physics, certainly. Its predictive powers are sort of quite limited. The economy is one of those complex realities that's open to interpretation, on which we have to do hermeneutics, and which involves human motivations, human psychology, human mass and group behaviour, human political organisation, and a whole, whole, whole swathe of factors are involved in any economy. And consequently, economics has schools. Neoliberal, Keynesian, Marxist, anarchist, you know, modern monetary theory. And, but it's very interesting that one of the areas that they've, they've always been very thin on, most of them, I would say, is money, the nature of money. Recall Richard Wolff, a, a very good Marxist economist with a, a very long lifetime of experience as an academic ec economist. Uh, and with uh, three uh, degrees in economics as well as master's degree in history from Ivy League schools, the bloke is very well uh, equipped to, to say stuff about this, but he said they, they were never taught about economy. They were never taught about money in, in all of the training that he had as, a, as an economist. He was told, the Archbishop told us, there is a veil over money. And I think that's right. There's a veil over money. And what uh, Stephanie Kelton's school, Modern Monetary Theory School, did was to say, well, let's just look and see what actually happens. Let's just check it out. You know, with the facts and the figures and the interviewing of people and getting the official documents and looking and tracing, following the money, finding out what actually happens. And basically, tax <laughs> doesn't pay for anything. What tax does is, is, in terms of the dynamics of the economy, it enables you to take money out of the economy. It's like a token burn, as, as, an, as an edge against inflationary pressures caused by minting money. So the government is both minting money and destroying money. That, that is the dynamics. If you imagine one of these hydraulic models, which of course are all now uh, computerised, you hear a lot of computer modelling of various economies. I don't know if you remember in the old days, uh, some economists used to model the economy with a big, huge piece of plumbing, like glass plumbing, so you could see the water flowing with cisterns and valves, and one valve checks another valve and the water flows this way and that way. Try to make a hydraulic model of the economy to capture its dynamics. Not that successful, moderately successful I suppose you might say. But really obviously there's two things with money, you, you burn it and you create it and if you can get that in balance you can have a kind of a, a reasonably manageable not a steady state economy in theory. Of course it never happens, you know. There are many black swan events, there are many miscalculations, 2008 being one of the most spectacular in recent history. But Stephanie Kelton's idea and, and uh, other people in the modern monetary theory school was well, just let's actually just empirically investigate what happens with money. 
So I'm saying tax done, taxes are token burn, QE and general money printing is a token creation. So what, what does tax do other than that? Well, tax does do a number of jobs. Uh, one job that tax does is it, it makes people be engaged in, in the economy of a society. Because tax has to be paid usually in the legal tender. So that means tax is a way of enforcing people's, families, people's, groups of workers and so forth. It's a way of enforcing people's participation in the, the official economy. So tax does that. You have to get a job, a sanctioned job, a job that's okay with the government, that's not criminal or deemed out of order, in order to pay your taxes. Number one. Number two, uh, tax can be used to elicit certain behaviours. For instance, high taxes on uh, cigarettes discourages smoking, at least in theory. So governments will try and tweak social behaviour and, and social attitudes with... Uh, with putting taxes on things or, or they can they encourage uh, behaviours that they like by reducing tax or giving a tax rebate for instance on, on marriage not sure whether that obtains now but it certainly used to it was worth your while vis-a-vis -vis tax to get married the government for social reasons and um, reasons to do with religious morality, morality and so forth and ideas about social cohesion to encourage marriage and the, and the bourgeois family so you've got a tax break for getting married. Well, of course, also they will, they'll reduce taxes on certain sections of the community if they want their votes. That's another thing you need to bear in mind. So tax has this, this job of tweaking social attitudes and social behaviour. But apart from that, I mean, there might be some other uses, but basically, apart from that, it's a token burn. And that in its turn is a way of attempting to regulate the economy, to keep it in a, a reasonably stable state and to keep it working for the status quo. Uh, and that's basically, you know, the, uh, the shareholding class, you know, the, 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 the oligarchs, basically, the, the very rich. They don't care too much about, uh, about Joe Public, as you can see by many of the, the actions of the... Uh, of the Tories, but of course they do have to not immiserate the general public too much because they might sort of rise up and sharpen their pitchforks and, and be dragging billionaires out of their mansions and dragging parliamentarians out of parliament. So there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a game there in class war, you know, tax, interest rates, what they do with savings, what they do with the money system are all parts of class war also, of keeping things in place so that the, the, the mob, or the uh, better than the mob, the, 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 the politically self-conscious working class from, from rising up and putting a stop to the whole bloody horrible game. So in summary, a couple of things. In the scheme of things it might be quite a small event, the legalisation of Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador. We should also mention that the Cuban government allows transactions in, in Bitcoin, doesn't 
it's not exactly made it official yet, but it's not against it and makes it known it can be used. And this is one of those economies that's blockaded, that's held under siege by the US because it had a socialist revolution way back in the day. And secondly, money in the abstract, you might say, comes to our attention in virtue of the way that the debates are being conducted over what needs to happen regarding social care in the UK, given that we have an ageing population. And uh, out of those two impacts, I've found myself wanting to try and elucidate some fairly uncontrovertible ideas about money which are just simply being overlooked by the mainstream media, by the politicians and even by the economists. Well, I hope you found that useful. If you get a chance to read Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, I would. It's an eye-opener. I'm not saying you have to take it all on board and become a modern monetary theory evangelist. But it does contain some very good stuff and it's pleasantly reliant on investigating what actually is happening in the world. Okay, well, make knowledge great again. I hope you're all having a good apocalypse. And I'll speak to you soon, and uh, I'll perhaps flag up here that I'm sort of planning to do some kind of Zoom question and answer sessions or something of that type, or maybe a little Zoom talk or a, a social gathering perhaps on Zoom at some point. So look out for that, and you can email me if, you, if you're kind of interested. Not entirely gauge the amount of interest there might be in such a event or series of events. Okay, over and out.